At Marshalls, our buyers hustle to get you great deals on great gifts. Cashmere sweater, nice. You'll get brand name quality gifts for everyone on your list and yourself too. Hello, designer fragrance. More brands, more quality, more gifts for less. At Marshalls, gift the good stuff. part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to movies by, starving, or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm Graham Williamson. I'm a film critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and Horrified Magazine. And this week I've been joined by... Ewan Gledwell. Hey, Ewan. So... A question for you listeners. Which band do you think the legendary rock critic Lester Bangs once described as a diseased bunch of motherfuckers, if ever there was one? Was it the Stooges, the New York Dolls, Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies? No, of course not. It was the Beach Boys, albeit with the caveat that he also said, the miracle is that the Beach Boys have made that disease sound like the literal pink baby flesh of health. That divided personality, the surf happy innocence and the deep well of trauma behind it, is mined in Bill Pollard's film Love and Mercy, a biopic of Brian Wilson that gives you two Brians for the price of one, one played by Paul Dano, one by John Cusack. Um, Ewan, had you seen this film before? I had, yes. I watched it years ago, back when I was first getting into the Beach Boys, and I thought that was pretty good. Um, I always thought it was a bit weird that it hasn't sort of made its impact as a huge biopic because it's it's really the only Beach Boys film that I'm aware of. Yeah, there were like a few sort of made-for-TV movies that tried to cover the whole group's story, which are not cinematically interesting masterpieces, yeah. let's put it that way. But yeah, this is, this is the Beach Boys biopic that, you know, people should go back to. Yeah, definitely. And it's a huge thing for me because this is the episode of Pop Screen about the man who wrote what I think is the greatest song ever written, which is Surf's Up. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Surf's Up. Surf's the best up. song ever. The greatest song s- ever written. I thought you were going to say something off of, like, you know, God Only Knows or... You Don't know. get me wrong, the Pet Sound stuff is fantastic, but Leonard Bernstein, no less once confronted Brian Wilson and said that Surf's Up is the greatest piece of music written in the 20th century. I mean, it's definitely up there. If you, if like, if, if we think about the legacy of the Beach Boys before that mm. sounds, it's, they, they were a very solid sort of amalgamation of the sort of young teen Beach Boys attire, you know, they had the matching shirt and tie, they had the surfboards, they were, you know, yeah. And it was, it's all part of the image, but they established that image really well. But I think, yeah, and it's obviously a large part of what I thought of when I thought about the Beach Boys before I was a fan. And when you were sort of diving into their back catalogue and you see there's a song called Surf's Up, you think, oh, I kind of know what this is going to be like. And then you press play and you think, Jesus, what's this? <laughs> It's kind of harrowing. Um, I assume that's the the reaction a lot of people had to Pet Sounds on its initial release, just as an album, because that's so far removed from stuff like Surfs Up. Yeah, it's... yeah. You're not mixing Surfs Up up with Surf in the USA, right? No, no. I know, I know which one you mean. Surf oh, okay. in the USA, I'm not overly keen on. No, no. I, I was just thinking chronologically, because Surfs Up was recorded for Smile and released on the album Surf's Up, so it came afterwards. But yeah, Um, yeah, Pet Sounds is, 
I think I once heard someone say if the baby boomers got one thing right, it's that Pet Sounds is actually a fantastic album. Oh yeah, I, I went back and listened to it for this, and it's. I think it's what what I've learned to understand about albums is that they need to work not just as songs by themselves, because a lot of my favorite artists they do a good few singles, but as an album, they have no real vision for its core. Yeah, where it won't work as a string. I mean, like Elvis Costello, for instance huge fan of his music i don't think he's got a particularly amazing album where it goes along with all the songs with such a clear narrative yeah maybe not i think armed forces is close i can always sit down and listen to armed forces from beginning to end i think blood and chocolate he tried it but Mm. i digress on that yeah yeah Um, (laughs) there will be a point where we can get into elvis costello at some point i'm sure with with pet sounds though, it's sort of from start to finish. It's such a a shift in not just tone and style, but vision as well. Because hmm. if, yeah. if you've got someone cooped up in a studio presenting what they think is their absolute magnum opus, then hmm. you're going to get something very different from the sort of image that they crafted for themselves before that. Yeah, and it's also interesting because the Beach Boys were one of those bands who were on a sort of conveyor belt. I mean, I was talking about this with Ben in our podcast on Get On Up, that James Brown has great singles, but there isn't, maybe Sex Machine, there isn't really a great James Brown album because he was part of that generation where the point was just to get an album out quickly. Yeah. And... In in a strange way, it was the fact that they were on this relentless treadmill that makes Pet Sound so great, because Murray Wilson, uh, the head of their publishing company and the Wilson brothers' father, had this really awful idea that um, you can you can get more money out of this if, when the rest of the band are on tour, Brian's in the studio writing and recording the next album, and then by the time the tour ends, woohoo, we can start touring again. What he <laughs> maybe fair, didn't in... predict is that <laughs> Brian would spend that time making one of the most ambitious albums ever made. I think, yeah, in theory, it's a very good idea. We'll go and tour this old stuff. You work on some new stuff that sounds a bit like this, and then obviously... There were maybe crossed wires. God only knows what happened. There's one, hey. but something, something got caught. Something got lost. And Brian Wilson, as it turns out, sort of cemented himself as one of those all-time greats. I think there are very few parts of the Beach Boys stories that are genuinely hilarious. But I would love to be, you know, what in there with Carl and Dennis and Mike as they came back from that tour. And they found Brian Wilson in the studio going, oh, hey, guys, uh, just uh, putting the finishing touches on some of the goat sound effects for this. No. Don't startle the goats. We've just gotten them synced up with the tambourines. Don't touch those. Leave them be. I think that's that's one of my favourite parts about Love and Mercy is that it captures the sort of frantic energy that Brian Wilson brought to a recording studio. Not in a sort of, this man is insane. What's he doing? He wants a horse in here. It's sort of a... He's just trying to innovate where he can because he wants to make something so truly removed from anything that's been sort of released at that point. Because it's early on in the film where he says, have you heard the new Beatles album? We need yeah. to be competing with this. So that was his response. To, I think it was either Rubber Soul or Revolver. It was Rubber um, Soul, yeah. He said it, yeah. Rubber Soul was the first album where he sat down and listened to it and basically thought, oh, you can do an album that doesn't have any filler tracks. Who knew? And that was the thing, that was sort of, because I've been, you know, that big Thousand and One Albums book? Yeah. I've been working through that, and the sort of, as soon as you hit the mid-60s, where Pet Sounds is, where Revolver is, where Rubber Soul is, you can sort of hear that shift where it's, all right, there's a couple of good singles there, we'll put put them in our back pocket and we'll move on, to this is an an album where it's, you could sit down, you listen to this start to finish, you can't just dive in. Yeah, I think so, and I think... In that early stage, even back then, I think the Beatles were slightly ahead because when you listen to their Let's Just Get an Album Out albums, at least you can say that all the songs are really fun and energetic. But as soon as the ambition starts going up, I mean, I love the Beatles, but I do think Pet Sounds is genuinely better than any Beatles album. Uh, Yeah. It's a big thing, I know, but I do believe it. 
I mean, I've always had a soft spot for Magical Mystery Tour. I don't think I've ever sort of Rubber Soul and Revolver are not fond on. So if we're talking as in like who was the better band of this generation at this time, I think yeah. it would definitely be the Beach Boys with Pet Sounds. Um, had Smile been released at this time as well, I think it would have been just such a, a different turn of events. Game over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, Smiley Smile released, but it was sort of when Brian Wilson actually went off and finished Smile. I listened to that recently. It's fantastic. I'd say it's on par or slightly better than Pet Sounds. I think it's incredible. Listeners, if you haven't heard uh, any incarnation of the Smile Project, it's you can get a sense of it just by how overwhelmingly ambitious the concept of it is. Smile is an album divided into three suites, and the first is like a pocket history of America, and the second is like about childhood, and the final one is about the four elements, and it ends in good vibrations. And you think that that's that's quite a lot for a 40-minute record to take on board, if we're honest. It's, you know, that's 20 minutes per segment. No, it's not. <laughs> My maths is not good. Time um, stops meaning anything when you're listening to Smile. That's sort of a good way of thinking about it, because I, I listened to that record a couple of days ago, and there wasn't a piece where it sort of dips. There's no dip in quality. It's such a consistently enjoyable record. It was just really nice to listen to, like, surfs up, good vibrations, but then stuff like Heroes and Villains. Yeah. Fantastic. And Heroes and Villains is, uh, a low surfs up is my favourite. Heroes and Villains is the song that kind of brought me round on the Beach Boys because up until then I had just heard stuff like Surfing USA and I Get Around, which are, you know, fun songs, but I couldn't understand why people talked about them as all-time greats. And I heard Heroes and Villains on the radio one day and my literal reaction to it was, this sounds like the Beach Boys, but it can't be the Beach Boys. When did the Beach yeah. Boys ever do something like this? Because that's the thing. I think if we if we look at it as just sort of a generation thing where it's, all right, the Beatles, masters of their work, they did such an incredible string of albums. I think the early image of the Beach Boys where they were these surfing dudes who were mm. drinking beers on the beach in the sun, that definitely had some sort of impact on their later works when they tried to break away from it. Because it, it's especially in the film that contrast between Brian and his cousin, yeah, where it's sort of it's it's parting with the old to make way for the new. And if you look at their records after Pet Sounds, where it's I think it's Wild Honey and Smiley Smile in the same year, yeah, it's just such a they're not bad albums, but it's such a step down. Yeah, the albums they were doing in the late sixties and early seventies have this problem, which I don't think they ever quite overcame, which is that. There's a lot of pretty good songs, and then there'll be something that they've obviously salvaged from Smile, and you think, oh, God, why can't the rest of the album be like that? Yeah. It is it is what it is. I think it's it's nice that he got the Smile recording out there, though, after all those yeah. years. Yeah, and I do genuinely like some of those like late 60s, early 70s Beach Boys albums. I think you know, Friends and 2020 and Sunflower are really good records, even if they they are much more uneven than something yeah. like Pet Sounds promised. It's every, every artist has sort of that peak when they hit, yeah. and then they just sort of peter out. I don't think the Beach Boys knew they hit their peak mm. because at the time, you know, the reception to the album was phenomenal, but it was, I think, this, the, it just didn't sell well. Um, yeah, it was a critical hit, but not a commercial one. Yeah, which at the time, I mean, that, that's an album that over time is going to get a sort of cultural appreciation stuff like John Carpenter films or you know it's in that vein of it's not selling well but it's doing critically fantastic it's the old Velvet Underground thing isn't it like Brian Eno said about the Velvet Underground only a hundred people bought their first album when it came out but all of them started a band exactly yeah it's the influence Hmm. outweighs the commercial profits of that album Pet Sounds so much it's funny too because when I watched when I first watched this, I watched it with a friend who likes the Beach Boys but is not, you know, absorbed in the Beach Boys myth. You know, doesn't have much knowledge of who they were as people. And he found the opening scenes really kind of corny and unbelievable because he couldn't believe that they were sitting around saying things like, "Have you heard Rubber Soul? It's the next step up. We've got to beat that." It's like, 
No, it, it really was like that, honestly. And I think that's one of the nicest parts of Love and Mercy is that it captures two different time frames. You've got the initial conception of Pet Sounds in the mid-60s, mm. and then you've got John Cusack with the, I think it's the mid-80s, isn't it? Mm. So you've got 20 years difference, but they've captured two different time periods so well because you've got the 60s, it's all, you know, flash pads, swimming pools, you know, weed and the Beatles. And then you've got the 80s, it's like Chevrolet, mansions on the beach and yes, stuff like that, yeah. yachts. It's very nicely contrast. The stuff you were talking about earlier with Paul Dano's version of Brian in the studio is, I think, the lastingly great part of the film. There's a great Absolutely. story about how Bill Paul had captured that and got that kind of sense of creativity going on that he refused to let his cinematographer, Robert Yeoman, also Wes Anderson's regular cinematographer, oh. uh, he refused to let Yeoman see any of the rehearsals for those scenes. So when he was in the studio, he was just acting like a documentary and trying to capture what was going on. And I mean, that would add a certain energy to any film. But when you're capturing something as unexpected as Paul Dano, as Brian Wilson trying to get dogs to bark in time <laughs> with some music, that's that's quite something. It's it's intentionally erratic and it's, it's it really is fantastic. It's it's when um it, I mean I. How do I put this without sounding horrible? I don't tend to like montage scenes in films. Just as, as a concept, I think it it's a very poor way of showing a story. But mm. in Love and Mercy, it's integral that it's shown like this because there's so much to unpack with the Pet Sounds recording. Yeah. And it, it's, it's the smaller moments where it's the bassist and she goes, oh, it's going to be out of key. It's not going to be in tune. She just goes, just try it, just try it. Yeah, and it yeah. goes back to the recording studio and it's, the little bits like that are so integral to how Love and Mercy stands, not just as a film, but as sort of showing the life of Brian Wilson at this stage. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, I mean, obviously a Brian Wilson biopic had been buzzing around Hollywood for decades before this happened because it's such an irresistible story. I think the first attempt to get it off the ground, there was going to be a version in like the late 80s with William Hurt as Brian. Um, it's yeah. could have been it's one of the great inevitabilities. There's certain mm. artists that no matter how hard you push back, you will eventually get a biopic off. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that gives Love and Mercy this particular character is in between that early attempt at filming this and the actual making of this film, you had things like the Pet Sound sessions released where you can actually go through and hear your different takes of individual instruments. And I don't think those studio scenes could exist without, you know, it actually yeah. being possible to listen to the bass line on Wouldn't It Be Nice and think, yeah, that is in the wrong key. What the hell? <laughs> it gives that sense of accuracy, and it's. I think that that's quite integral to any biopic. But it's sort of, as long as it's entertaining, then most biopics can coast off of a good cast and just sort of core scenes that, you know, feed feed into the trailer. I think with yeah. Love and Mercy, I don't know. I, I think I watched the trailer. There's a couple clips of the recording sessions shown, mm. so it's sort of a oh, you get to see them do pet sounds, but then. It's the detail that's alongside it that makes it work so well. I don't think the recording studio scenes would have worked had it not been for the, as you said, you know, all the bass lines out of key or he's got dogs in the studio. It's the nice little details like that that are highlighted so well. Yeah, and it means that one of the things I love about it is that it shows you the creative process being actual graft. Most biopics of musicians cannot match up with this. And I'm sure if anyone who wasn't, as Bill Paul, I'd say as he was, anyone who wasn't actively obsessed with that Pet Sound Session box set was making this, I'm sure we absolutely would have had the sort of standard crap rock biopic thing where Brian Wilson goes, I don't know what to do with the people in my life. Some of them are heroes, some of them are villains, and wait a minute, there's a song in that. Yeah, it's it's the fact <laughs> yeah, that it's you gonna can be like... actually see him do take after take of this stuff is great. If this was 
made by the producers of Bohemian Rhapsody, Bill <laughs> Camp, who plays Brian Wilson's dad, would stand in the studio and go, you know, son, I still believe in you. And then Brian <laughs> Wilson goes, you still believe in me? That's a good song. <laughs> and it'll just be that after that for all all 13 songs. On yes, essentially. Just over and over. <laughs> I'd like to see him do cabin essence in this way. Yeah. It's just like the it's... essence of a cabin. What are you? What the fuck are you talking about, Van Dyke? What's the essence of a cabin? Ah, oh, Brian Wilson, allow me to introduce you to my good friend, Sloop John B. And there we go. <laughs> There's that title song. Hello, Mrs. O'Leary. How's your cow? <laughs> I think it's the sort of the innovation of the music biopic over time mm. had gotten progressively worse. If we look at Bohemian Rhapsody is the sort of low point. That's the rock bottom because we had Rocket Man after that, and that sort of shot us back to where we should be. Mm. But to think that Love and Mercy, I think it was four or five years before Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, yeah. And the the contrast between the two is you've got one is made by producers and Brian May saying I, I was such a hero, and then on the <laughs> other hand you've got two different points in one person's life that contrast so well, and it's so grounded in using the archival sounds you've got them using that information that's present to them and it's not like they're shying away from all the harder stuff because they do show that very well it mm. just so happens that the best part of that film are the actual pet sounds recording and the fallout from it yeah absolutely yeah and you know one of the things that happened to rock biopics before this was that they had become this guaranteed oscar season thing which whenever something becomes that successful someone always wants to break the formula and in this case it one of the people involved in this film as a producer and a co-writer is Oren Moverman who had he's directed some of his own films but he had a screenwriting credit on Todd Haynes's film I'm Not There which is a very 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 experimental non-biopic of Bob Dylan And I think even though this is a much more conventional film than I'm not there, because I'm not sure whether there is a less conventional rock biopic than that movie, it still has that insight that Moverman has into the form that is based on pulling it apart and trying to make it not be what it is. Yeah, I think the further people go left of field with biopics especially, the, the better their chances are of creating something that's going to last. Because mm. if we think of the past couple of years with biopics just in general, yeah. do you remember The Front Runner? Oh, God, dimly, yeah, yeah. Exactly, dimly. <laughs> no, in, in, in two more years, everyone's going to think, what was that film? And, and if you think of the cast of that film, Hugh Jackman, J.K. Simmons, I went to see that on opening day, and I was the only person there. Yeah. It's not, it's not a bad film but it's not an innovative one. And I think with biopics, there's such a safe formula that more people are now questioning, well, why aren't we doing more with this? Like the musical yeah. scenes in Rocket Man, they were fantastic. Or something like, like Love and Mercy, where it's contrasting two key points in his life. Just small changes like that, that should just occur naturally, where it's yeah. why show a progression when you can show two points. Bohemian Rhapsody might have worked a lot better if we'd started with the fumblings of Freddie Mercury joining the band mm. and their live aid performance. If you're going back and forth like that, I mean that nothing could save that film. But as <laughs> as, as, as as just a, a platform to leap from, I think what Love and Mercy does so well is actually casting two very different actors to play Brian Wilson. Yeah, we should talk about them because. Um... I had slightly different reactions to them. I think the Paul Dano performance is perfect. It's everything yes. I wanted yeah. from this movie. And I really love Paul Dano anyway. I think he's he's a man with the soul of a poet. And I love that phenomenal. film he directed yeah. a few years back as well. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, Wildlife. Wildlife, um, yeah. So he, he's, he's who you sort of dream of in this role. Cusack is more of an odd puller. And even on a second viewing, I'm still not sure how I feel about that performance. Yeah, I think I'm a big John Cusack fan. I don't know why, because despite being a big fan of him, I don't think I've ever thoroughly enjoyed him in any film. (laughs) Um, It's a weird fascination with him. 
but this is kind of, this and he did maps of the stars with david cronenberg in the same year this oh, is like his yeah. last hurrah yeah after this he dropped off the map he did sell with samuel l jackson Oh, that's the one where mobile phones make you into zombies, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah, the Stephen King one. But that's like his pro- high-profile stuff gone. Yeah. So I, d- I don't know if this was sort of a passion project for him, or it's a weird one, because I'm pretty sure it was Dano Odano got a Golden Globe nomination. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if, if anything, that just shows the disparity between the two. Um, I think... I- don't think it's a bad performance per se, no. but I just could not stop seeing John Cusack. Whereas with the Paul Dano performance, I, I found it very easy to see Brian Wilson. I think it's 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 a physical thing as well as sort of a mental thing where it's how he embodies the role. Because with with Pet Sounds being so pivotal, it's easy to imagine Paul Dano. He's got the you know he's got the I don't know what you call it, the Justin Bieber haircut. What you call yeah. it? the bob? Like he's yeah. got the look, he's got the polo shirt, he's got all of the, but he's also got the sort of spirit that Brian Wilson brought into that recording studio, where he's trying to innovate, he's fighting against his band and his brothers and his father. Cusack is sort of a more generalized approach to the, the man is in need of help and can't get it. Yeah, but there's nothing, nothing. Yeah, nothing sticks out about his role, but it is, it's solid. It's just occurred to me when you mentioned Maps to the Stars that in Maps to the Stars, John Cusack is essentially playing Dr. Landy, isn't he? Essentially, yeah. I think it's <laughs> it's it's strange how much the Beach Boys influenced his career choices in one year. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think Cusack's a strange one because he's a fine, fine actor. He's really mm. good and he's... I don't know. He's good in this. I I don't think it's so much Paul Dano overshadows him. I think it's he's just not given enough to work with. Yeah, I think maybe part of the problem is that Dano has that kind of immediate way to tap into his Brian Wilsonness, which yeah. is that in most of his scenes he is singing, writing, or performing Beach Boys music. So it's it's pretty easy to buy him yeah. because of that. Whereas Cusack has the more kind of thankless task of playing Wilson when he was isolated from his music, when he couldn't write, he couldn't go on to. And it's maybe inevitable, it's harder to see the connection because of that. Yeah. Definitely. I was going to ask that. It was rather, um, if, if he's so removed from the actual musical aspect of you know a musician, then essentially he is playing a person with problems. Mm. I think the benefit Dano has is that He's so embedded in both the music making, but also that breakdown that we see with Cusack. So I think he gets the best of both worlds. He gets to perform Pet Sounds and also sort of corks the flame out of Cusack to give that performance alongside uh, Paul Giamatti and I think it's Elizabeth Banks, isn't it? Elizabeth Banks, who, yeah, I'd... um... I've never been a huge fan of Elizabeth Banks, but I think she's really good in this. I'd forgotten how yeah. good her performance is. I think it's this and Scrubs. It's that that's the pinnacles. Um a, no, she's really good in this. That's a versatile set of two pinnacles, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's Doctor Chevrolet employee, the pinnacles. But yeah, I think <laughs> she has some really good scenes with Giamatti. I remember mm. it's the she brings him some soup. She goes yeah. into the house and they just have that sort of stare down. And they have that nice Mexican standoff. And it's that sort of... Sorry, the, the more you... The, I'm just thinking on what you said there. It's the Cusack's really not a big part of the film. He, he embodies Brian Wilson. He's there. He has the relationship with Elizabeth Banks' character. He also has a couple of scenes with Giamatti. But really, the those parts of the film revolve around Elizabeth Banks and Paul Giamatti at war over Brian Wilson rather than about him. I think that's a good point, yeah. I think Dano has the advantage in that he is the film's hero in the way we traditionally think of a film's hero. He is doing things, he is active, he is pushing the narrative forward. By Wilson's middle age, that is just not happening. You know, you could you couldn't say that that was something he was capable of. So, yeah, you're right. It is uh, it, it is Banks as uh, Melissa, and it is Giamatti yes. as Doctor Landy, who were really 
doing things proactively here. Yeah. And Giamatti's really good in this. I always smile when I see Paul Giamatti in a film. I oh, think he's, he's a really charismatic guy. He's a real treasure. I think it's ever mm. since I saw him in Sideways and Private Life, it's just been... He's, he is always a genuine pleasure to watch, and I think he's got such nice range yeah. as, as an actor, because here he plays someone that's quite contemptible, quite horrible. Yeah, he's yeah. really manipulative and horrible. I mean, if you contrast that with something like Private Life, where he's just a struggling middle-aged man just so wanting yeah. a child he, he can play a lot and i don't think he's given the opportunity to go fully with this role i don't think he ever gets to that point where it's amazing i think uh the real melissa led better on melissa wilson as she is now did say we had to tone some of the dr landy stuff down because people just would not have believed that it got that bad which i guess is a an occupational hazard with any film based on a true story absolutely yeah i think you've, you've got to give a bit and take a bit i think especially with the life of brian wilson because there is a lot to unpack with how much influence he had on musicians but also sort of what led to the creation of Pet Sounds and how that affected its mental state over the past, you know, 20 years. I think it's a very hard line to balance where you're flittering back and forth between these two segments. You're going from, you know, Cusack and uh, Elizabeth Banks on the boat and then you're flipping back to the Pet Sounds recording and the impact of that. Mm. It's, I don't know, I, I, I think that's the biggest issue I've got with the film. It's very good, but I think there's a balance inconsistency at times. It sets itself a tough task, and I think it just about yeah. pulls it off. But there were, oh, there were times yeah. where you thought you could you could have done a simpler film. I, I honestly could have watched Paul Dano running around the studio in a fireman's hat yeah. for about two hours. You know, it's, yeah, definitely. I think Dano definitely gets the best scenes mm. out of everyone. It's the um, oh, it's when he first comes up with good vibrations on the piano, and he's just sat there. Yeah, piano in the house, and it, it, he looks so panicked, but so happy with himself to have created the chords to such a great song. And that's wonderful too, because the first person who hears that is Jake Abel as Mike Love, mm. and I'd always been kind of puzzled by the fact that Mike Love is credited as a songwriter on Good Vibrations, because mm. it's kind of canonical rock myth that Michael Love was always the guy who hated the Beach Boys getting experimental and thought yeah. any of Wilson's avant-garde ideas were crap. Um, but when Paul Dano is sat there just playing the chorus of Good Vibrations on the piano and it sounds like this kind of 12-bar blues boogie, <laughs> I, think, yeah. I can kind of see why Michael Love would be into this. And then when they're in the studio and you've got the cellos and the theremin house, it's like uh, maybe maybe they, maybe you lost control <laughs> over this at some point. At, at some point, the narrative swung in the favour of Brian Wilson in that one. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that they do capture that quite well, that sort of relationship between the two. Because um, there, there's a lot to unpack. I think even now, there's sort of a bit of hostility between the two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th there are so many stories about Mike Love. Um, he actually sued for songwriting credits on a lot of the the Beach Boys old songs, including some of the Pet Sound stuff, which he wasn't like therefore yeah. <laughs> but he, he managed to successfully argue somehow that brian might have phoned him up and said you know mike i've got this song it's called don't talk put your head on my shoulder can you just hum a melody or something for that down the phone to me well you know mike loves a very inspiring musician you just ring brian wilson up give him you know let's go away for a while and hang up the phone off the touring yeah, very nice. Just casually whistling, let's go away for a while. How would that work? He was actually, he rang Brian Wilson up and he was like, why didn't you put some dogs in there? And yeah. see how that works. And there we go. I think uh, it's it's nice because they do show that sort of, this is very much a Brian Wilson record that he yeah. got the Beach Boys to do. And that's realised quite nicely in the film where they're sort of saying, this isn't a Beach Boys record, this is a Brian Wilson with the Beach Boys record. And I've always found it interesting, that sort of conversation around at what point does a band become its singer and a backing group? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think Pet Sounds may be the best example of that, where it, 
yeah, pretty much. Yeah, completely. Because uh, like we said earlier, because of the circumstances of its recording, I don't think there is an instrumental part from any of the other Beach Boys apart from Brian on it. You know, they sing on it, of course, but all of the actual instruments were played by session musicians. Yeah. It was quite a, a big band project, really, in a way. There's, there's a lot of people credited on the album. Completely, yeah. And another scene that I love in the film is where you see Hal Blaine, who at the time was, you know, the guy you went to if you wanted a session drummer, just quietly sitting Brian down outside the studio and saying, you know, you're the best musician I've ever worked with, and I've worked with Phil Spector. And I, I love that Dano absolutely makes you understand how much that means to him. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's. I think he gets the that emotional three-act structure down very nicely. He's got the optimism of actually creating something that he wants to do. Mm. He's got the sort of the hype of actually getting it released, and he's very excited. And then he has the realization that it's not it is not what it could be, but the, the commercial success of it. And then after that is the it's the scenes where he's brought the the uh, the violinists in, and he's just plucking the chords for three hours, saying it doesn't sound quite right. And it's either perfectionism or just insanity. Yeah, I think that was a big part of Brian's mental health problems, that he could not let go of things, that he found it kind of hurtful sometimes to put things out in the world. There's a wonderful story about him in the early 70s when he was in the absolute depths of it, and some friends who didn't quite understand how bad he'd got said oh we'll take you to this party brian you know there's some some of the younger rock stars will be there and he went in and he got talking to a couple of them and he said hey we should uh, go back to my studio see if we can record some music and he got them to sing the old american kind of like tin pan alley song yes shortening bread he said all right you sing this part and i'll sing this part and it'll be like a barbershop thing and we'll do it and they sang this one part of the song for a solid hour before one of the younger rock stars said, all right, this is far too weird for me. We've got to go. And those two rock stars who were completely freaked out by the nice man in the striped shirt who sang surfer music were Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop. What? I mean... <laughs> If you think of the trajectory Alex Co- Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop had, they are in no <laughs> position to complain about singing barbershop quartets with Brian Wilson. I, what an honour. <laughs> I mean, don't get me it's... wrong, if you'd picked on me for it, I could have gone for two hours, but I think yeah. e- everyone who met him at that point said he would just fixate on things until it really kind of freaked you out. Yeah. And I think they, they, they realise that quite well in Love and Mercy. It's mm. the, um, when he walks into the recording studio and he just says, something's not right. Yeah. And he sends everyone home. And it's like, that was at the point of definite sort of perfectionism encroaching into your mental health and it's moving past what it really should be. It's just a professional thing. Yeah, they, they tone down some of the more like delusional aspects of what he was doing around that time, I guess, because... You know, it kind of, for a while, it became a kind of joke about rock stars going crazy in their mansions and they didn't want it to go into that territory. But people would share stories that, for instance, after they recorded Mrs. O'Leary's Cow, which is shown in the film, he would find every newspaper report of a fire in Los Angeles and think it was caused by like the bad vibes that that recording had put out into the world. Yeah, it's it's sort of that again. It's that blend of sort of superstition, but that's insane. Like that's you know Mm-mm. that's uh, it, it, I, I, there are parts in Love and Mercy where it's sort of very well realized. Where it's sort of he puts the headphones on, he starts hearing the voices, and he pulls them off. Yeah, I really like that scene. I think that's a great scene. Now, in, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking, well, is it good that they only do that once and cement it there? Or does that need to be a recurrent thing to make the Cusack part work? 
I think there's some parts in it that are really effective like that, like the one where he's at the dinner party mm. and the noise of the cutlery and the glasses clinking yes. just becomes yeah. louder and louder until it freaks him out. And I think maybe that is a way of showing that level of illness that is like more sensitive than having the potentially funny scene of him weirding out Iggy Pop by singing Shortening Bread, yeah. you know. Because <laughs> there is the room to show that, because it is quite a short film for a biopic. It's, I think for it's... a biopic that covers this yeah. amount of time, certainly. Yeah, it could have easily gone for two and a half hours, but it's oh, just, yeah. it's about an hour 55, something like that. Yeah, it's, you know, if you factor in all the credits and the opening titles, it's sort of a, a nice solid hour 50 chunk it's very yeah. nice it's very manageable it's not taking up too much time so overstaying its welcome and i think considering how much they've got to get through they, they, they manage that really well i think those opening credits are great and it's like the greatest compression of of time in an opening credit sequence since yeah the start of you remember Zack Snyder's Watchmen opening credits which are the best bit of the whole film you know what that's the only Zack Snyder film I've not seen I binged them all before Justice League and that was it that was me done what what an interesting life decision <laughs> the best film he's got is the one about the owls I'll stand by that Owls of Gahul was fantastic and by fantastic I mean it's fine and manageable yes honestly it's but yes, I understand what you mean there. It's, um, I think it's I think a good it's... idea you're doing that because I think you maybe can't recreate the world of an instant chart success in the 60s now without yeah. it looking really corny because the music industry back then was corny. It was kind of a naive situation yeah. where you just put stuff out and it either sank like a stone or became an overnight hit. And it's you can't get a generation who were raised on music as being something that goes viral to really accept that kind of simplicity, maybe. That's the thing, yeah. I think, especially with the whole corny sort of atmosphere of the opening credits and everything, I think mm. that's sort of a byproduct of how we've reappraised the 60s, especially through other films. I think the biggest example, well, that's Austin Powers when he's going yeah. back to the 60s. And it's all like, you know, summer love and he's got the uh, what do you call them? Those shirts that are really flowery. Oh, the yeah, the frilly shirts. The frilly I, I never know what they're stuff, called. Yeah. I call them John Pertwee shirts because I'm a Doctor <laughs> Who fan, so that's my main association. Yes, but like yeah, John Pertwee shirts. You've got lots of suede blazers, and it's that's now the more accepted sort of, sort of process for looking at the '60s. Is we look through the '60s through other concepts and mediums. Yeah. It just so happens that a lot of the mediums that we're working through are, are parodying what was a very innovative time for music. Completely, yeah. I think, obviously, every era becomes more interesting the more you look at it, if only because you find out more stuff. But it does kind of bother me that as soon as the 60s generation grew up enough to have some serious buying power you started to see things like Forrest Gump that were all oh weren't the 60s a time of innocence and hope and optimism also some sort of war going on over here didn't really think much about that but anyway <laughs> it's it's the nice contrast of ah yes I've got shares in Apple I met John Lennon I also carried my best friend to a helicopter in the middle of the <laughs> Vietnam War it's like yes. you fail to mention that but Mr Gump <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's the, the biggest downside to the 60s of being such an influential time for music is people just look back and say, what a great decade. What a, yeah. I'd love to be in the 60s. I'd love to be listening to the Beach Boys and get my draft letter. It's sort of, no, nobody <laughs> gives it that, there's no connection between the two. It's there's of... part of me that thinks we are living in the 60s now. You know, we have this insane generation gap. We have like multiple crises going on. Yeah. It's certainly been an influence on new forms of culture and media that people 15 years ago couldn't have imagined. It's oh, just, absolutely. it doesn't half seem like a lot less fun once you're living <laughs> through it. I, it's, I think that's, that's the thing. It's sort of that rose-tinted glasses experience, but we weren't there for the 60s so we yeah. think it might be engaging or endearing to go and actually live in in that period but then you look at sort of the overall history of it 
Pet Sounds was sort of, you know, April, May, you know, that, mm. that was it. It was just a little few months compared yeah. to 10 years of extremely difficult times for a lot of people. Mm. But don't worry about that because Pet Sounds came out here. We'll just hang on to that. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think it's it's such a strange contrast. And I think, I mean, 40 years from now, we might look back and think the music that's coming out now is, oh yeah, I'd love to be back then. But it contrasts with horrible times. I'm sure they will. Yeah. And I'm sure there's, there's a part of it that I don't want to say something as glib as horrible times produce great music, but yeah. there is at least more to sing about. You know, when people oh, are just absolutely. satisfied, it's hard to really come up with something that's going to, like, lodge in the public's head and really mean something and stay with them. Oh, definitely. Because if, if we think about the post-60s period as well, the amount of art that's been influenced by the Vietnam War or yeah. Richard Nixon and all the horrible political tensions at the time, there's so much out there that we wouldn't have had if it weren't for horrible people and horrible moments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's it's telling that this is, as we say, directed by Bill Pollard, who's normally a producer. And when you look yep. at his production credits, I mean, there's a few things that are quite pop screen friendly there. They, he produced American Utopia recently. Um, but a lot of it's stuff like Brokeback Mountain, 12 Years a Slave, The Tree of Life. You know, he doesn't do fluffy nostalgia pieces. He's not that guy. I think, I think that makes it all more interesting that he directed a film so seeped it. You know, actually, I, I'll give Love and Mercy credit. It's not seeped in nostalgia for the generation. It doesn't exactly engage with the whole period. You've got a few mm. Beatles references there. You've got the hippie movement here. It never feels like a film that's saying, what a lovely time to be alive. Look at all this music and culture. It's a very sort of streamlined approach. It's here is how Pet Sounds was made. Here is yeah. what happened to the man that wrote it. And I think I, that's its strength and downfall, really. If it is seeped in love and nostalgia for anything, it is seeped in love and nostalgia for the world that the Beach Boys created. I think yes. it's very aware that that kind of California beach party world was not actually a social history of America in the 1960s. <laughs> there were other things happening, but as an experience on its own, it matters and it holds up. Yeah, it's not like they're, they're saying, oh, up until the age of 35, you'd be on the beach surfing and then you become a Republican. It's not that. <laughs> it's sort of like a... Yes. It, 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 I think it does demonstrate the sort of... There, there are parts where it's if it just focuses in a tiny bit more, then they've got a really pertinent point about the culture at the time. Mm. If they want to go for the drug culture, if they want to go for how... Pet Sounds was accepted socially and critically and commercially. They have all these components, but I think what does weigh it down is that this this is essentially a Brian Wilson biopic rather than a Beach Boys biopic. Yeah, but I think even with that very, very narrow lens, you can see a lot of why the Beach Boys mattered so much at this point of history. Oh, yeah. It's like Definitely. the concept of a teenager was something that historically hadn't really existed before the 50s. As lifespans started extending, people developed this odd kind of in-between phase between going out and getting a job and being a child. And I think part of why the Beach Boys are, are really lastingly wonderful is that even when he was like in his early 20s, Brian Wilson had a great sense of nostalgia and he was able to anatomize that teenage experience that hadn't existed previously obviously every rock band at the time was making music for teenagers but that was it they were just making you know songs about a sweet little girl of 16 because their target audience was 16 only brian wilson could have written something like caroline no Thing. that's yeah if you look at stuff like the who the beatles uh, mm -hmm. they were very popular very rightly so but i don't think they were ever fully in tune with an audience i mean if i i mean one of my favorite beatles songs is magical mystery tour uh, mm -hmm. sorry no strawberry fields forever yeah um but even then that that nails the culture it wants to assimilate itself into i don't think it has a full understanding or to an extent the understanding that brian wilson would have 
for this sort of period of culture. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned The Who because part of what is fascinating about The Who is that for someone who was an icon of that era, Pete Townsend always seemed weirdly outside of it. Like there's, yeah. there's very little in The Who's songs where you can say, oh, that's a very 60s sentiment or that's something that only happened in the 60s. He yeah. didn't seem to have that same worldview. No, he didn't. No, I think it's very easy to sort of mimic the worldview in music mm. then if that's yeah. the case because he made some of the most popular tra- i mean he made my generation as if to assimilate himself into that generation but he yeah. wasn't really part of it not not to the extent that brian wilson was four teenagers at the time because i think that's the benefit of the image they had before pet sounds though with the surf and, and the shirts that yeah. they were trying so hard to cut into that image in hindsight it looks like they're really forcing it. They're really trying to be this sort of, oh, let's go and have fun on the beach in the sun. As it turns out, Pet Sounds is probably the best example they've given of what teenage life at the time was like. Yeah, and, you know, even then it's got stuff like I just wasn't made for these times on, which shows you that even someone who was absolutely encapsulating the mood and the sound and the meaning of his Eva still occasionally looked at it and thought, why do I have to be in this generation? You know, why do I have to be part of this Eva? Exactly. Yeah, he's here today. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what, I love that there is a whole scene in this movie about the weird studio chatter in the middle eight of here today. Oh, That's when you know you're watching a film made by a Beach Boys fan. That's the thing. I think if more fans made biopics of artists, then we'd have much better reception to them because it's stuff, it's those little details again where it's the picking up on those little things. Yeah, and they're talking about it. It's not common knowledge, really. If you if you're an average person that's paid for a ticket to see Love and Mercy, you're probably thinking, "Ah, oh, Brian Wilson was the fellow that did God Only Knows," and then you've gone in and it, it's it's a film that can teach. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's little, yeah, little little facts that are nicely strung together. Yeah, I agree. I think that's probably a good place to leave off, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in more pop screen, remember that if you subscribe to our Patreon, you can get a free bonus episode every month, as well as episodes of our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery and my Doctor Who reviews, which are better than you'd think. I'd like to say better than you'd think. Um, also, remember to say subscribe to our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter for any future news. But until next week with more pop screen, that's been your lot. I've been Graham. I've been Ewan. And we'll see you later. Bye.